Welcome to the Omni Gamers Club podcast. This is Mark Uesa. And this is Daniel Winter. How are you doing today, Mark? I'm doing fairly well, yeah. I am fully recovered from COVID, and I am looking forward to what this year has to hold for uh, games. How about yourself? Yeah, it's, um, I mean, I'm, I'm fully boosted now, I'm glad to say. We haven't quite gotten uh, some physical games together back off the ground yet. Things are a little slow getting back into the routine of, of actually scheduling things with other people outside the house. Uh, but hoping that hoping that comes soon. Uh, Vancouver's been true to form, and we, we, had, we had a nice couple of weeks there, and it's uh, graced us with another very cold, wet week, which is true to form for the, the game we'll be covering today. That's right. Uh, this game happens to be set in our hometown. But before we get into that, let's talk about what we've been playing. Do you want to start us off? Yeah, well, as I said, I've not been terribly busy on the board gaming front. Uh, mostly been playing on the digital side of things. Uh, actually been playing a surprising number of multiplayer games with uh, some of our board game friends, uh, like Risk of Rain 2 and Anacrusis and uh, Gunfire Reborn. A few, we've sort of been bouncing back and forth in a few different things. We've been having a lot of fun. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not one to usually play a lot of multiplayer games but i did actually manage to get a board game to the table this last week I ha- I'm, I'm fortunate to have a a neighbor who's who's a board gamer and we've finally gotten back into a sort of semi-weekly routine and so this last week we popped open my city uh the legacy game from the good doctor reiner Knizia. yeah it, it is a legacy game but it's a like a, a pretty standard size box and it's a relatively short game and uh, like 20 30 minutes basically very simple rule set at least to start with uh but of course it's going to be layering on new mechanics as the campaign goes but we we basically popped the box open and started reading the rules there on the spot so i we hadn't didn't even do any research but we got through th- the first three games in like 90 minutes so it, it it's pretty easy to pick up and play the it's, it's a great example of tutorialization i think in in board games which is something that hasn't really been done very much board games tend to rely on just learning everything in one huge clump and then and off you go whereas this uh, outside of just the legacy elements is a great way of, of gradually introducing you to the rule set i i think so looking forward to exploring that one some more. I guess I should explain very briefly what it is. It's basically each player has a, a grid, a grid of squares that you're placing building like the tetromino buildings into onto this grid. And I mean the the first mission is basically cover up rocks that are on the map and don't cover up trees because trees if you leave the trees open they give you points. If you leave rocks there'll be negative points. And that's it. Like it, it's the, the first game is super simple, but uh, as of the second game, it starts getting much trickier. So it's uh, yeah, I'm, 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 re- I'm really enjoying that one so far. Yeah, I've been very curious to play that game. From everything I've hear, uh, it's been quite positive, and uh, I think they've managed to achieve something with that game that would be very hard of having a easy to play, easy to learn legacy game. Um, I think it's really the first of its kind in that way. And uh, I think as a result, it's won a few awards or at least been nominated for some. I'm pretty sure it was at least nominated for the Builders Yaras, I think. And, and that was in 2020. I, I love legacy games in theory, but by design, they're a real 
labor to get to the table and set up. Like Gloomhaven takes nearly an hour, it feels like, to, just to set up the game and, and like scheduling it is such a chore. Whereas this is just very, very pick up and play. Uh, so I think that's, that's something to be commended, uh, an accessible legacy game. I'd like to try that sometime. I'll talk a little bit about what I've been playing. I've been playing mostly uh, video games for sure. That's been my focus of late. Uh, and I've been hitting up some retro titles. So I finished two games recently. One of them, this is the nth time that I beat it, but uh, I played Borderlands 1 again, uh, this time on the Xbox. And I I just had a hankering for it. I, you know, of course, I've beaten it a couple times before. And I played through the main campaign just because I felt like it finished uh, all three of those games plus the pre-sequel and tales from as well so that's uh, definitely a, one of my favorite series i guess i was just excited to looking forward to the new wonderlands game so i just wanted to get a taste of something dumb and something violent <laughs> uh, and that fit the bill it's funny going back to that game but it still works like some of those weapon combinations just feel great and i'm playing through the later dlc they're doing some fun things there and it's like um expanding on the world it's not just uh, a level expansion or something they're they're making some really interesting zones uh for that world that are probably just as good as the ones in the main game so i think if you guys haven't finished borderlands or haven't even given number one a try it's still playable i enjoyed the heck out of that one then i ra- finally wrapped up ff12 you may have heard the news, but Final Fantasy XII is leaving Game Pass. And I kind of sensed, I think we were talking about it. We we both guessed that it was going to get the old heave-ho <laughs> pretty soon. So I'd been working steadily at it. And then I finally decided to just mainline it right to the end. And I finished, I don't know, maybe half or a bit more than half of the hunts. But uh, I just got tired, so I just mainlined it to the end. And you know what? I don't think I'm going to go back even though there's some interesting post-game material there. That's been my playlist of late. Excellent. I'm still plugging away at uh, Final Fantasy XII myself. I, it's been on my back burner for the last couple of months, but that's uh, really put a fire under me with coming now that it's coming off Game Pass. So trying to, trying to rush through, but I think I've still got a way to go on that. Uh, and, and Borderlands, I mean, I, I, I think I bounced off the original Borderlands when it first came out, but Borderlands 2 is one of my all-time favorites I've, tr- I've tried going back to the first one when there, there was a re-release a few years ago and kind of bounced off it again it's like the, the gunplay and writing is still great but it's the the, the, the movement it's similar to what we discussed in the halo the this that sort of slow plodding movement is really hard to go back to in light of uh, very mobile shooters these days yeah and we should we should try playing one of those together sometime perhaps yeah, no doubt. I think we talked about playing the, um, the Windows, Tiny uh, Tina's. Um, they're they're rebranded that as a standalone now. So. Yeah, I think it was the expansion from two that they've sort of broken broken out separately, which I, I enjoyed back in the day. So yeah, wouldn't mind revisiting that. Yeah, I read a little bit about it, and apparently there is going to be like a, a level cap on it. I was a little bit worried that there wouldn't be enough actual gameplay to unlock some of the cooler aspects of Borderlands, like the. I firmly believe that the game really starts when you unlock class mods, and typically that's not till like level ten or fifteen. So hopefully they did something about that and, and gave you access to it a little bit earlier. I'm hoping. Yeah, I have to imagine they accelerate everything somewhat to take out the grinding that's in, that's usually involved. To since it's such a, a smaller experience, 
this in being a sort of segmented space. Right, we should tackle that soon. Sure, yeah, let's, let's do that. Uh, so why don't we move along to our featured game of the week? As we were talking about a very rainy Vancouver, uh, we've been experiencing that in our video game of this for this episode as well. That is Backbone, the sort of 2D detective game. I mean, most people recognize this as the detective game where you play a raccoon, basically. <laughs> this was developed by Eggnut, a... I mean, it's, it's a kind of a local studio, but similar to what we discussed for The Long Dark. It's basically a, a very remote, heavy studio. They have people based across Canada and Russia and the Netherlands, I think it is. So they're, they're pretty much designed to be a primarily remote studio. But the, the head, the sort of founders are at least in, in Vancouver here uh, and published by Raw Fury, who I know have, have, have handled a few of my other favorite indie games. Uh, and it came out last year, June, I think, was its original release. And it was originally a Kickstarter game, actually. I think back in 2016, I think it was. But it was a pretty modest goal. It hit, hit just about just under a thousand grand Canadian. So yeah, pretty pretty modest development, but uh, small studio, and uh, yeah, it, it, it's it's come out recently on on Game Pass. So we've been excited to to work our way through that. It seems it's on every other platform as well. So not just not just Xbox. If anyone is curious, I think it's probably even on Switch and PC and all that. So literally coming to Switch February 9th, according to this year. So pretty much when this when this episode is due to come out, I think. Oh, very cool. Maybe we'll give it a slight bump. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So backbone. We already hinted that it's set in Vancouver and in a in a not very uh, typical Vancouver. We'll we'll go into that into a little bit. But what type of game is this? It's got some firm roots in graphical adventure games, games like um, Secret of Monkey Island, Maniac Mansion. You'll feel close connection to those, and even the the telltale renewal of that sort of genre. You definitely get those feels, but maybe even a little bit more back to those LucasArts days because of the pixel art graphics, which are just really fantastic. Not just a graphical adventure in the traditional sense, but uh, you also have a very strong narrative aspect to this. It, it almost kind of carries you along in a lot of ways. In that sense, it's a strong visual novel qualities to it as well. And ultimately, the the modality of it is is a is a mystery. There are you know betrayals and disappearances and, and murders involved. All the good noir tropes. Exactly. It's a, a neo-noir, a noir-ish mystery uh, overall. You said it was uh, had um, some similarities to point-and-click adventures, I think. But that, that comparison can be a little misleading, I think. I mean, that's certainly what I went into it expecting, looking at the trailer and everything. But there isn't really a lot of that happening. You are You, you do explore some areas like you you find yourself on a, on a street you can walk back and forth you can talk to people and, and discuss clues and there's a, there's a couple of puzzles to solve but only only a couple that i can think of offhand of, of true puzzles you've got a couple of stealth sequences that are pretty canned 
basically scripted to hide behind this couch, wait for the person to pass, continue on your way. So very, very simple. Really, I think this is more in the line of something like a, a, a visual novel. It's it's very much focused on the dialogue. And not, not to say that that's a bad thing. That's, that's certainly a, a valid style of game, but you have to measure your expectations accordingly here, I think. That's really most of what you're going to be doing here is engaging in dialogue with people, both as part of the mystery and with random bystanders you find on the street. And we should say that this is a, ultimately a very short game. It, it, it ends up being around four or five hours when you play it through and uh, about as many chapters to it. And the, all the chapters are quite different from each other. I mean, they take uh, different story beats, of course, but uh, they're different tones and, let's face it, probably a different amount of development pressure or, or development time was given to each of those chapters. So I would say that it sort of feels like a different game uh, as you progress into the later chapters. I mean, I'll stick to my guns in saying that definitely the first and second uh, chapters of this game are strongly in the graphical adventure game category with some elements that are downright puzzles. I think there's one, at least one or possibly two cases of like a literal cipher puzzle, right? Mm. So you have like these uh, postcards, these posters, and you have to lift <laughs> these paper ciphers over top of them to reveal the letters and numbers. Underneath. I don't know if you caught that. This is a very cool Easter egg in what that code you're solving ends up being. Uh, yeah, I, I did. Uh, I, I did see that it. one. Yeah, it's it's, it's a. <laughs> let's just say it's a um, what a literature reference. Just adventure games in very much the sense that original graphical adventure games use dialogue as part of their gating to access different areas. Right, you, you talk to Aunt uh, Edna in the mansion and, and try and talk your way past her or very much the same way you have to talk your way into a certain a certain high class bar uh, in this game or get <laughs> get some insights out of certain characters we already mentioned the game is set in vancouver but it's not our vancouver right like it's not the vancouver we we live and breathe in right now because first of all the world is populated entirely by animals also, there's this mysterious wall that uh, everyone keeps talking about as well, which is kind of ominous in theme. So it's sort of like an alternate world, alternate history, or maybe like far future post-apocalyptic uh, Vancouver where animals took over. But it's not exactly our world, is it? Yeah, I've, I've heard some interesting theories around that whether what 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 where the time set is here, and I mean some of the some of the aesthetics are a little bit. Sort of almost a little bit steampunk, so not 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 quite modern. Sort of, 20, I mean, obviously the noir aesthetic sort of places it in in sort of early nineteen hundreds, I guess, as opposed as opposed to the more modern aesthetic. But there is still some modern technology. Like it's computer modern. Well, there are computers, but the interface is very old school. So it's it's a really interesting mismatch of, of styles there and architecture. There's also like far flung sci-fi technology as well so it's sort of anachronistic you don't really know where you are although it uh, definitely alludes to the art deco heyday of uh, noir novels and, and and film yeah part of that's just vancouver too obviously <laughs> um but yeah it's, it's, it's really it's, it does a great job of capturing that style though there's a f it's a few familiar landmarks you'll see uh renamed i think there's a, there's a local restaurant called roxy burger here is of course is Foxy Burger, 
<laughs> uh, right. the, the 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 Vogue theater is now the Rogue. So it was fun, fun, fun spotting some of those familiar sites around the city. But I mean, for sure. it, it very much does ground itself in in parts part of the city from neighborhoods that you visit and and some of those specific locations. The neighborhoods of the city are very real. Although I would say the West End is the, probably the the most different take on what the West End actually yeah. is. From, from yeah, someone who's back. lived in the West End that was that was definitely quite uh, stark. <laughs> right, but so let's just talk about the first couple of zones that they send you to. So there's there's the Granville area, which is a sort of a seedier nightlife area. And then there's the Gastown area, which is a little bit more bougie and a little bit more posh. And I felt like those were fairly accurate to today. Uh, it, you know, it was like a tweaked up version of yeah. reality there. Yeah, no, those, those those were the most familiar neighborhoods of those that you visit. The very much like alternate sort of history <laughs> in, in, in a way it felt like just, yeah, down, down the other you see the, the the mountains in the background in down in Gastown. I noticed that was a nice touch, and very much the the gentrified <laughs> clash of of up, upper class and, and lower class, which is a, a huge theme in this game. There's a lot of themes of uh, classism and racism, I guess, if you sort of equate them to the the different animal species. Um, you know, one aspect of the story of uh, that. It reminded me a lot of was ironically of the Disney movie Zootopia, yes. which I think you have seen with your family a lot, right? Uh, it, it's my daughter's current favorite, so I've been watching a lot of Zootopia. Yes, <laughs> right. Well, just like Zootopia, there's this class distinction between herbivores and carnivores. All fantasy racism, basically. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, they have to put it through some sort of filter, right? I guess. It seems like the carnivores have the high power positions. They have the the class and the status. And it seems like the herbivores are more of the proletariat sort of working class, don't get a lot of respect, and are protagonist which we haven't even mentioned yet uh is is uh you mentioned that he was a raccoon but our protagonist howard uh howard lotor is a bit of a you know sam spade type gumshoe very very stereotypical his uh personality is pretty much like wise talking kind of low life or, or down in his luck looking to scrap together his last bucks to pay off the rent the desperate sort of gumshoe that we've seen in so many noir uh, movies and stories in the past but through all that i think howard is actually a fairly likable character what did you think yeah well that's just it. It, there's actually a few different ways you can play him he's a little bit elusive as to what type of character he is exactly from the get-go you have the opportunity to sort of guide who he is like you you can very much play him as the 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 classic cynical detached down on his luck uh detective or you can play him as a very empathetic uh, character who's like depressed by the constant oppression that he's coming across. Uh, like, you say down his luck, but I know one, one interesting point was like, there's a few points where you're you have to pay for a, a newspaper or a book, and you have the opportunity to say, "Oh, I, I don't have the money for that," or just pay for it outright. Like you decide whether he has the money for it or not. There, there is no currency. You never actually have like an inventory of money. You just decide: Can he afford this, or is he that, or is he that poor? Uh, so you actually role playing just how, what degree of poverty he's in exactly, I guess, which was an interesting touch. I felt like there was a lot more of that earlier on in the story. 
when you're starting to paint on the on the canvas, right? You're starting to piece out what type of a character Howard is, and and I guess yeah, I guess in my mind, Howard is very much that is low life curmudgeon, you know, edges of society sort of character <laughs> that's just trying to scrape by. Maybe because that's like the story I wrote for him, and you know, I liked that, so I, I'm glad to see that you saw something slightly different in that, and it, it did have the flexibility to enable that. Yeah, I, I definitely played him on the more empathetic end. And I also appreciate that he doesn't really have the, the sort of classic tragic backstory. He doesn't have a dead wife or partner to sort of that's that's made him detached and cynical. I mean, he's got a, a complicated relationship with his mother, which is about as most backstory as you get, basically. He's not a particularly tragic figure. Um, other other than what he's faced by the oppression of society in general, I guess. Right. And even even that relationship with your mother, it sounds like you can basically, you can sort of write yes. what the nature of that relationship is. So that is a cool aspect as well. There aren't that many named characters in this story. I thought that they were all quite engaging and well-written. Some of the earlier ones, like you have this pal, the, the beaver. Anatoly was quite endearing, the sort of like John Candy type, you know, <laughs> big, lovable, giant sort of thing is, is hanging out. And then you have the sort of like spunky a lady partner who's a turns out to be a journalist who you uh, partner up with fairly early in the story and becomes sort of your compa- companion in unraveling the mystery or in the early part of the game. Some of the other characters like who's the boss of the club? Clarissa, I can't remember her last name, but basically a polar bear mobster or some, or some head of some kind of crime family who's running a bar and is is implicated in the the big mystery, basically. Uh, so yeah, there's, there's only a handful of, of named characters that you're involved with, but they're all pretty well fleshed out. It's, it's interesting that I, though, I, like the the upper echelons of society, it's not necessarily just carnivores, it's apes specifically. There's there's a lot of references to the apes. The curiosity, you never actually meet any of them. There are are a couple sort of implicated in the mystery, but never in any grand way. They're always hovering over over the story and the the, the setting, I guess, is the the oppression that they're bringing, but you never directly have them as a a direct... uh, sort of conflict in the story they're sort of like looming there in the distance sort of like the wizard of oz or something is you you hear hear them talked about but you never really see them and i I guess you know that's what one website um saw called it you know um furry furry apartheid in in vancouver (laughs) essentially the they keep the the species apart which like wasn't so obvious i mean there weren't like ghettos I guess there was the one ghetto, but yeah, there, weren't, you know, <laughs> there weren't border guards or anything like that. But it sounds like there were definitely careers, types of roles that only certain species of animal could uh, attain with much ease. There's a there was an interesting character in the late game who sort of breaks that mold, and she is she feels justified in performing her role, even though she's conflicted because they're letting they're letting her quote unquote fulfill that role against type, which I thought was an interesting twist. Yeah, I, I think I did, actually did quite a good job of justifying 
that like fantasy racism gets a lot of flack these days. I know there's um, D and D is undergoing a bit of a sea change in that regard, and even Zootopia would mentioned. It, it's a common trope to have, you know, the, the animal people, but it, it, it's easy to fall into a bit of mixed metaphors with the uh, with that sort of racism as, as, as different species. I mean, in Zootopia, you've got the predator versus prey, but there is an inherent difference in those. Like they're, they're overcoming them in this no, noble way, but inherently there is a distinct difference between predator and prey. Whereas in, in this, that's not really made a big deal of. All of the discrimination you come across, it's all socially driven. Like it's not the particular species can't be scientists because they don't make good scientists is that society has dictated rabbits can't be scientists it's all very systematic racism and oppression which i found in a, a subtle but very important distinction here and of course the the thing that fantasy racism gets wrong is that the races are a construct there are no races all mm. humans are humans and the differences are only go skin deep Whereas in every other fantasy, you know, even sci-fi like Star Trek, those are actually different species that come <laughs> from different worlds. So, of course, they're going to behave differently from each other. But anyways, that's delving a bit too deep, perhaps. The first couple of chapters start you off with a very stereotypical mission. You're given a job to track down someone who's like a you know cheating husband sort of thing. Basically, you track down the details of that. You end up in this very lovely set piece. I think it's called The Bite. It's that uh, club we were talking about. Uh, there's a couple ways into that, which is like, I think the most like adventure gamey aspect of the game so far. I won't unravel exactly how I got into there, but <laughs> let's just say that there's more than one way into that club, isn't there? Well, it, it was implied that there was a couple of different ways, but I wasn't able to get one of them to work. And I'm not sure if that was a bug or if it's forcing, if, if it was sort of trying to subtly force you into one way or the other. No, there definitely are multiple ways to get into that club. I, I read on some other websites, but just like you, I also tried one way and it didn't work out the first time either. I think that's intentional. Interesting. So that's a great set piece. And there's a great conversation with the boss of that club, a very strong female character who <laughs> ends up running throughout the story. She's a very interesting character and a great conversation and just like beautiful music interesting characters uh just background characters in that club as well even the lighting real bang up job they did with that with the set piece i think is one of the more memorable ones yeah i think it's something we should talk about in general is the the graphics of this game i mean at a glance it's one of those indie 2d pixel art games you've got the which there are a lot of these days and increasingly a lot of them are like really pushing the boundaries of what you can do with pixel art. There's some really beautiful ones. Like um, I was talking about Blasphemous last episode. Uh, and you, you've got like the, the parallaxed sort of layers sort of moving at, at different speeds in the background. One thing I didn't even notice this at first, but there is actually 3D animation going on here as well. Some of the, like the foreground, the road moving along the street there is actually 3D. And so you've got, like the, the, some of the water effects playing on the road that combining with the 2D mm -hmm. animation in a really seamless way. Actually, I didn't even notice, but it, it allows for some really dynamic lighting and weather effects. That's that's quite striking. It's it's a really beautiful effect. 
this would sort of be the continuation of those LucasArts graphical adventure games if the technology had sort of kept up to pace with that, um, if, if that genre had continued to be the top of the pile. But but you're right. Sometimes you're you're in an environment and then a few hours later you come back to that environment or you come out of a building and the time of day has passed and the mood totally changes just from some color tweaks. And um, yeah, I would say that the background artists did a real amazing job with some of these beautiful backdrops, namely for the the gas town and the gravel settings that I mentioned earlier. Some of them are, are a little bit more rough, sort of roughed in, but they still achieve the goal. Yeah, they do some fantastic work with pixel art and more modern particle effects and lighting. I realized this just inside in the, a regular apartment that's sort of barely furnished, but the, the way the light was coming into the window in a dynamic way just suddenly hit me as that like how how dynamic the the, the, the graphics in this game are that really quite uh, yeah really, really quite beautiful. So I, I really enjoyed that. Uh, but as, as you said, yeah. there are, uh, towards the end of the game, some of those elements are a little more, not, not quite as flushed out. I feel like some of the, the, the later environments didn't get quite as much detail. And yeah. I think there is, like some, some elements did feel a little rushed. I, I wouldn't go so far as to say that it was, like, there, there are some story beats towards the end that I think justify that. But there, there were a couple of, of elements towards the end that, that felt a little bit, blank <laughs> compared to the sure. start that's so fully realized before we move on from the graphics uh, we would uh, be remiss to forget that there's a totally different art style that's also implemented fairly rarely um, there's some sort of interstitial scenes um, where there's a sort of a kind of like a VGA painterly art style where you get like really detailed portraits of the characters you may recall like there's usually just like three stark colors. Like there's like a, a bluish to fades to black to sort of like an orangey highlight. It's actually the very same art style that's utilized in the box art. Do you remember those yeah, sequences? Yeah, now uh, it, it's basically used in between, in between episodes, moving from place to another, but it's basically the color of a bruise, which is very, uh, is very noir, I guess. So that sort of black and blue type of, 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 of look that art style and that that graphical style really took me back it's the sort of like the posterization effect that you might recall from early days of photoshop in the in the 90s and, and such that um really takes you back to that time and place but still like way more detailed and way more painterly than you could have achieved with the low resolution res- resolution available at that time so i thought that that w- they did you know a fantastic job with that and 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 you you get a good sense of it if you look at the box art. So yes, beautiful, yeah, beautiful color design, beautiful painterly art, just winning in in all presentation aspects for sure, and and, and sound design certainly. One one little nitpick though, I found like the first thing I noticed about this game is just the idle animations. These big exaggerated shrugs that the character is sort of gesticulating in these really broad ways that I found a little unsettling to be honest it, it, it reminded me of a couple, a couple of sort of horror pixel games that I've played it sort of seems like he's wearing a skin suit or something that uh, <laughs> I, found, I found a little strange it's, it's, I don't know what you'd call that 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 the character movement exactly but uh, some, some of it was was a little more um, a little better than others yeah kind of like a little paper doll style perhaps yeah, yeah, and I think the, the, it's hard to say how much of that is, is deliberate if there's a point to that that might 
be tied into the, some spoilery stuff. But um, talking about spoilers, I'll just say that kind of as you might expect, like there's a hard, hard twist story twist that happens at the end of, I guess, chapter one or something. So I, I told, uh, told you guys that basically there was that first case, but the first case just is the starting, right? Is <laughs> just the tip of the iceberg. As you oh, might there's expect. always more. <laughs> if you know anything about noir, it's, yeah. it always goes deeper. <laughs> exactly. And that's all at that point only is when you start, you meet Renee. investigative journalist, Renee, who is, uh, what is she? Is she a rabbit? A fox, I believe. Yeah, she's a fox, so a different species than Howard, who's the raccoon. But, but she seems you- to have a little more privilege in the society. She has, like, she has better access as a journalist to speak to. to like, she's written, she's already written a book on uh, people of power in the city and and has contacts with with with, with, with sort of some of the positions of power. So she she. Right gives you has a little more sort of resources backing her i guess yeah i guess she's showing a sort of an, another aspect of the the classism in this game is maybe she's just a character that can sort of play the game right she can appease the higher ups uh, a lot more than uh, our lowly howard can perhaps but they they form a fairly close bond in unraveling this larger mystery that goes beyond the first case and that pretty much takes you to three quarters or four fifths of the way through the entire game and then it takes even more radical twists off of that. But let's just say about halfway through, you get to Science Town or something like that. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure what it was referring to. I mean, obviously there's Science City. No, it's, uh, there's, there's like a science museum in the city. That's the, the only analogy you can think of. There's Science World. Science World, yes. <laughs> which is that little golf, the kids golf museum. ball. <laughs> right. It's, it's a sort of uh, like they have in... Um, you know, Seattle, like Interactive Science Museum. Yeah, so I'm, I'm really not sure what this was trying to model on, because it felt like it was supposed to be a yeah a bit of a... When they were just talking about it, I thought they literally were talking about Science World, <laughs> uh, but just using the fictional parlance. But it turned out to be an, like an arcology. Well, like a, yeah, an, an enclave for the, for, the, the, right. the, for the real people of power, that li- living in some sort of... I don't know if it was one building or a suburb, but it was a somewhat enclosed, gated community, basically. It was a sort of an, an arcology, which is like a, a building as a community sort of thing for a privileged set. And the only way, you know, Howard sort of gets gets to visit there is through like a tour sort of thing, because it's it's for the knowledgeable, it's for the scientists, it's for the, you know, the people that have higher class and higher access. And I don't know how much... Uh, everyone else knows about Vancouver, but this doesn't <laughs> exist in the, in the real world, no, Vancouver. No. <laughs> well, perhaps a little more figuratively. <laughs> sure, yeah, definitely classism exists in Vancouver, <laughs> mostly in, in terms of real estate. But <laughs> there is no science city, and there is no large science Monolith. enclave <laughs> as of yet. So I feel like about halfway through the game is where it really diverges and becomes a very different from the modern day real world. I didn't even really. I was only at that point that I really got the 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 sense of the wall that was surrounding the city. That it, it truly is like a dystopian post-apocalypse to some extent. Like oh, we don't go outside the wall. It's, it's nothing can live outside the wall. So it's a, a truly sort of enclosed city. It's like Attack on Titan or something like that. Mm. Yeah, I thought that part was weird. And then we talked earlier about um, I forget where the West End chapter comes in, but that was quite different as well. Like um, the West End is a 
is a very diverse community with one of our, our most populous, um, dense communities, um, neighborhoods in Vancouver. Lots of young people, lots of old people. Um, it's a famous gay a- area of town, mm. very vi- vibrant and very multicultural. Lots of fantastic Japanese and Korean restaurants along the borders of it, right near Stanley Park, really. But in, in this story, they transformed it into uh, a real-life ghetto. Yeah, basically the slums. It was you know, that was the most stark difference I, I noticed there. I guess they had to choose some place to make the ghetto, so they they chose the West End there. But I thought that that was another real twist as well. Some really good character development stuff there. There's a sort of a missing persons case that you go on, and you have to track down this background of this character who's gone missing, and then you engage with this character's mother, and then you do a little bit of snooping and, and find out about her by reading her private writings. And mm. I thought that that was really kind of a tender, more focused moment that sort of spelled out this character for you without that character ever being present. A little bit like they did in that um, Gone Home, I felt. Yeah, I think there's some some great character work there, dealing with like the grief. You're dealing with the the, the family of, of people who have gone missing, and how do you like you're you're looking into them, but you're looking into these missing people, but trying to talk to the these family members as a as a total stranger, as no one of, as with no real authority, uh, and and trying to deal with some level of empathy i mean you, you can deal with that or you can be much more abrupt obviously but uh there's some there's some good nuance there i think into how these people don't necessarily trust you <laughs> right so i don't know how much more i want to get into the details of the story i think that's the real pleasure of this game is to unravel the the story that it's very you know clearly trying to tell you in a very focused manner in this game i will just just say that there are twists and then there's even bigger twists in the last couple of chapters of this game that take it in directions that I really was not expecting. Yeah, it really, without saying too much, I think it really subverts the genre. And and I know some people, it becomes really divisive. I know some people disregard, like think the ending ruins the game, that it basically jumps the shark or shark person as it was um but i i i think there is something to say about what they're, what they're trying to do with that there, there's like actual de- de- very deliberate subversions of genre i mean i was doing some research into post-noir and metaphysical detective stories but uh, i won't go into too much detail there but uh there, there is definitely a history of what they're trying to do here i think yeah the the subversion is probably where it needed to go in my mind i didn't I didn't hate it. Uh, I went along with it. You know, I followed wide-eyed all the bizarre twists and turns that it took. It goes into a very sort of like almost metaphysical, certainly sci-fi direction with some of the characters. And I think it would have been very stock and very standard if it continued on with its noir detective story mystery. Definitely, yeah. I don't think it would have stood out or gotten any sort of notoriety other than for its art design, unless it it took a a firm twist. World building, though, fantastic. Like I think that world just begs to be revisited. It begs to be sort of expanded because quite literally, we did we did we go past the wall? Yeah, we did go past the (laughs) wall, but the wall exists 
they say there's nothing out there. Is there nothing out there? You know, that's the great mystery, right? Like there's still more mystery to be unraveled. And um, they they certainly didn't spill all the beans on this, you know, fantastically teased fantasy world that they've built. Yeah, it, it is a really well set out setting. There are, there are a lot of elements referred to, like I said, the, there's a lot of references to the ape you never see. There's reference to, I can't remember they call it, the, the garden, basically where St- Stanley Park, which is a big, huge forested area, is basically the the, 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 the farmlands in, in the city. You never actually see that. I'd, lo- I'd love to see more of how that works and yeah, s- several other suburbs around the city. You see a map of a clearly delineated suburbs and you see about half of them, but all of there, there is definitely a lot of information garnered to the, to all of those parts of the society and the city, and yeah, a lot that, that's covered, but you don't actually see. So I, it's a very flushed out setting that uh, yeah, I hope to see more of. And they have announced, I think, that there is a new game of some sense coming this year, apparently, which seems very soon. But I imagine is going to be reusing a lot of assets. I think they're playing more with like different, like the same the same locations with different seasons like it's a winter setting or something. Uh, so that perhaps focusing on, on more dialogue and rather than building out new locations. That would be very cool as if they, you know, took a different direction with it. You know, I enjoyed this game. I, I think more people should play this game if, if you enjoy adventure games, visual novels, you know, just don't expect to be doing any major gunplay or <laughs> very <laughs> intensive action sequences. There's nothing like that. There's just kind of going along with the story but if people found the first game divisive maybe the second game i think they even said maybe it's going to be a prequel maybe you yeah, can approach the world <laughs> yeah maybe it can approach the world in a slightly different way and and yes i would love to see those other parts of the world that they just teased at you know ultimately this game it felt like it was the back half was way more rough constructed than the first half and that's when the story went sort of off the rails you might say you know i enjoyed some of that i enjoy weird stuff but just the even the gameplay mechanisms were not fully fleshed out i feel like there was one puzzle or something in the, in the very last chapter and it was ultimately very unfulfilling because you had to sort of perform it in a very specific way and i think it like literally bugged out on me the first time I tried (laughs) the very obvious thing that it was trying to get you to do and it just didn't work so ultimately I was able to reload the game and finish it but yeah it it, it just really teased at something strong there but didn't quite land it Uh, and I'm just hoping that they'll have another chance with uh, Backbone 2. Yeah, the the pacing does get a little rushed at the end. I, I ultimately I appreciate what they're really trying to do. Um, I, I think they ran up against some some hurdles. I'm sure the lockdown was part of that. Sorry, the like the, the pandemic was it was definitely a part of a part of that. I, I know there was like stealth was originally supposed to play a much bigger deal. Like there was a whole smell sense that he had, and in, in, in literally smelling clues like the, the old detective sense, like like in Batman Arkham Asylum or something like that. Um, and then some other like some other stuff that t- that touches on on spoilers that was supposed to be much more fleshed out. Uh, I could only think that they you know went to the effort of building out all of these the overview of all of these neighborhoods and the backstory of how they intersect and how all these aspects of the culture interact with each other. I could only imagine that they built that out 
to be explored and if <laughs> they just didn't get around to it in the time that they had. Mm, I, I think this does, it does stand alone. Some of the ways the story wraps up towards the end does feel a little bit rushed and, and not, not quite, doesn't doesn't quite come together. Obviously, they leave a lot of loose ends for whatever's coming next. But I, I think it, it does largely. Like, I, I wouldn't be upset if this was it. There's enough closure with a mix of ambiguity. To I mean, it, it, it is unsatisfying in how it ends, but only in the sense that that's the, the point to some extent, without saying too much more. So I, I appreciate what they're doing. I'm still it's still trying to process. Like it covers a lot of themes, especially towards the end there, that I'm still trying to wrap my head around. But I, I appreciate the the ambition that they they took the that the direction they took it in. Agreed. I like strange games, and <laughs> this certainly is that. And you know what? It's only a four hour game, so bust it out if you got Game Pass. If you got Game Pass, you got to do it, and I'm sure it'll be on sale soon enough. Otherwise, on other platforms. And, and switch possibly today when you're listening. <laughs> Sorry, one more thing I should mention. Yeah, um, go for it. The, we, we didn't talk about the music at all. The, the I, I mean, there's been a lot to say. It's pretty. I mean, I, I was looking up a a, a blog about from the. I think it's, it's actually the, the, the co-founder that D- D- Danshin is his last name, but he he and a, a musician. You know, now that you mention it, there are actually a couple of voiced tracks there's one at the club and then there's one at the missing person's home which are very very stirring yes there's like there's at least three beautiful songs like, voiced fully voiced vocalized songs the, the singer is aruj aftab i think her name is uh and she, and she worked with the co-founder and they produced all the music together and i think like on one hand there's the the background music that's very it's described as dystopian doom jazz. There we are. <laughs> That's how the, um, the, the, the the composer described it. But it's it's very grimy, you know, like matches the the city, especially in that opening sort of Granville strip in the rain. It feels like the music is sort of comprised of parts of the city, like you know, banging trash cans and car horns. Like it's it's a part of the city itself. Um, that I it, it sort of blends into the background, but in a, in a fairly um, ubiquitous way. Uh, but then, then you have these very abrupt vocalized songs that I felt provided a great opportunity to just stop and reflect on the setting and and what it, what, it, what it's trying to say. Uh, one of one of the one, one towards the end there is this very mournful, nostalgic song at a, at a pretty when he's at his low point, basically. So I thought that was provided some great pathos, basically. <laughs> yeah, you're totally right. The music, uh, especially the vocalized songs, they are a fantastic addition and, and really, you know, make this beautiful package, beautiful to look at and beautiful to listen to, as well as uh, to read the characterizations. There's rough patches, but every piece of art does have that. And, you know, this is certainly that. It's an ambitious piece of art but promises to hold strong things for the future, I hope. Absolutely. Shall we talk about the next game that we'll talk about next episode? Yes, yeah, we're, we're flipping back to the the analog side of the coin. Uh, we're going to be looking at some board games. Uh, similar, similar to the last episode where we looked at a sort of series of games, we're going to be looking at the Race for the Galaxy series, cardboard universe so you've got, you've got race for the galaxy you've got roll for the galaxy and you have new frontiers a sort of trilogy of games all set in the same universe and borrowing 
some similar mechanics from each other. So we'll be having, having a look at those. I believe all of those are available at Board Game Arena and have yes. been for a little while now, including a lot of the expansions, probably not all. Uh, some of them actually might be behind a, a paywall. Well worth it to pay for those additional expansions, especially for race. Roll, I'm not quite so sure about. It's the one I have the least experience with, but Same, I yeah. played I played a decent amount of New Frontiers recently, and I quite enjoy that. Uh, I don't know if you have anything to plug with anything else you're working on right now. The episode I was teasing you about last time, the podcast that I was invited to was one um, another Canadian board game podcast called Boards Alive. Uh, I was asked by Aaron to come on. And we had a fantastic talk. We talked for well over an hour and a half, I think, about lots of topics. It was great to be on on his podcast because, like us, he talks about board games and video games. Yes, Aaron's an, an honorary Omnigamer. <laughs> Certainly an Omnigamer. And uh, I've invited him to come on. And we'll definitely have to arrange that for the future because, um, yeah, he's just a blast to talk to. Absolutely. I look forward to listening to that. Yeah, it should be out very soon. So I'll uh, I'll link to the episode if it's out by the time. Excellent. Uh, well, on my end, I, I'm trying to get back into the streaming side of things um, with something a little more regular uh, and to sort of give myself a little more routine. I've started a Let's Play of Morrowinds, The Elder Scrolls Three. Uh, so a couple, couple of... It was originally... 2004 i think so one of the older elder scrolls games but it's my favorite game of all time as i may have discussed previously so i thought that'd be a fun way of exploring one of my favorite games in a, in a new in a new light so I've, i'm, I'm strip, currently streaming that sunday nights about 8 30 pacific time so keep an eye on that and uh now that i've i've, I've now that I'm back into a routine, I'm looking to also start a playthrough of Backbone. So I'll be starting that probably in the week after this podcast comes out. And I mean, it's a relatively short game, so it'll only be a couple of episodes, I imagine. But I'm looking forward to exploring some of like I might take the other path and play the more cynical Howard. So I'm looking forward to experiencing that. Go dark. <laughs> It's funny, you say you can't go back to the early uh, games like Borderlands, and then you go straight back to Morrowind on me. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's too, too ingrained in my childhood. <laughs> yeah, I'll admit, that's a beautiful game. Fond memories of that on OG Xbox. Yeah, that, that was where I first experienced it. So uh, I'm, I'm, pretty, I'm playing pretty mod light, but I, I do have some benefits from playing it on PC here. Awesome, looking forward to seeing more about that. Yes, they posted for the schedule on on those streams. So until next episode, next time you see us, uh, keep on playing those games. Game on games. Play those games. (laughs) All right. Thanks, Mark. Bye. Bye.